Having made it our prayer that the Lord would teach us from his word, we turn again to his word. And you can see in your bulletin that we're turning now in our service to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, these past few weeks we've been learning from God's word about God's word. We've been learning from these writings about these writings. And what have we seen lately? Well, we've learned that God's Word centers on God's Word, and by that I mean the written Word, which is the Bible, it centers on the living Word, who is Jesus. He is the Bible's main character from start to finish, even long before he's named. We've also learned that the writings that make up our Bible, they were breathed out by God as his own Word, breathed out by him so that we might be taught and rebuked and corrected and trained by them and even saved. These writings have that power. They are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And we've also learned, and this was last week, we've also learned that because all of those other things are true of the Bible, well then, there is great blessedness. There's great, true, deep happiness that's to be found in living by the Bible. And that's what we saw last week at the very beginning of Psalm 119. Remember those words, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. The the whole Bible has a beatitude that's practically emblazoned on it. Blessed are those, happy are those, who seek and who obey and who walk according to the writings that we've got in this book. So that was last week, and that brings us to this week. Because one of the things we noticed last week, as we made our way, as we reflected upon those opening verses in Psalm 119... One of the things we noticed is that there is blessedness, happiness to be found in a scriptural way of life, because when you open the Bible and start reading it, lo and behold, you meet Christ, and you find the forgiveness that's to be found only in Christ, and blessed are those, happy are those who find forgiveness in Him, blessed are the forgiven. So we noticed that, by the way, last week. This week we're taking that theme and we are moving it front and center, and Psalm 32 is where we go to find it. So let me read for us this Psalm of David, these 11 verses. Listen now to the Word of God. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. 
I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray together. Father, we do believe that there is great blessedness to be found here in your word. And at the same time, we confess your sovereign mercy, that that blessedness, that happiness is yours to bestow by the Spirit. And that's why we pray Sunday after Sunday when we come to your word like this. We pray again this Sunday. Would you bless us? Would you grant us to know that happiness that comes from the Scriptures, even the relief that comes from knowing that we are forgiven by you? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week when we got started, I challenged you to fill in this blank, happiness is blank. Happiness is what makes for happiness. And so last week I offered up some answers of my own, ranging from the silly to the serious, what makes for blessedness. Well, this week, here's a different one. It's related, but it's slightly different. This week, fill in this blank, relief is blank. Relief is. What makes you sigh with relief? For example, relief is the referee finally making his way back into camera view after what felt like an interminable video review and announcing to the world that the Penguins did, in fact, score a good goal. Or for that matter, it's the Penguins getting a third-period goal that gives them a two-goal cushion over the Capitals. That's even better. And with that, our visitors will all storm out of the hall. Relief is getting that math test back and discovering that you didn't bomb it after all, or for that matter, opening up that test to take it and finding that you're ready for it, which is even better. As we've noticed before, judging by the ad campaigns of yesteryear, relief is an effective antacid. Whether it was Rolaids or Alka-Seltzer, they all wanted you to think, 
that theirs was the one that would get you that relief. Or more seriously, relief is finally getting word from the doctor about a different kind of test and the news is good. Or relief is a relationship being restored that was on the rocks for years. Or relief is your grown child finally being in a good place in life after several years when you weren't so sure. Whatever it is, however you might fill in the blank, whether it's silly or serious or some combination, you experience some kind of pain or anxiety or suspense, and you experience it for some length of time. And then finally, that pain, that anxiety, that suspense is resolved and it feels like a weight has been lifted from your shoulders. Sometimes it's so palpable, it almost feels that way physically. Like a weight has been lifted so that it's, it's actually easier to get up out of bed in the morning. Relief. It is a sweet reality when you taste it which is why you long for it when you don't. And you've probably discovered this as well. When you are burdened in some way, especially if the burden, the pain, the anxiety, the suspense is weighty, maybe the most difficult, maybe the most dispiriting conclusion you can come to is the realization that there might not be any relief coming. Maybe even ever or at least for a very long time, maybe even for a whole lifetime. And you're left not knowing. Chronic pain, even if it's not excruciating pain, that can be worse than sharp pain that you know is going to end sometime soon. We crave relief. We want to sigh that sigh. Well, here in Psalm 32... What we've got is relief with a capital R, relief for David. And we've got it in this spiritual sense. There is nothing in the whole of human experience that rightly causes people to ache and groan for relief like a sense of our sins in the eyes of a holy God. There's nothing that rightly makes us ache for relief, quite like that. And David knew that. He knew it very well. He knew it very well from his own experience. And here in Psalm 32, that's what he describes. Here in Psalm 32, he tells his story. Over the ages, scholars have come up with all kinds of um, categories for the Psalms, and they're They're helpful. You've got your praise psalms, and you've got your lament psalms, and you've got your thanksgiving psalms, and there are others. Usually they call this one, Psalm 32, a penitential psalm, and that's because David is describing repentance here. And that's fine. That label works. It's a penitential psalm. We can call it that. But I've always thought of this as a great relief. Psalm. You might even call it a sigh psalm. 
because that more potently captures what's being expressed here. Why? Because there's this palpable sense of agony that's, that's expressed early on in this psalm as David looks back and remembers. In this case, it's David's own fault. And as you're reading the psalm, you're made to feel that agony until at last, as David looks back and remembers, at last the agony breaks and the relief that he must have felt when it did. This is not one of David's psalms that's explicitly linked to a particular episode in his life. As you're reading it, it's hard not to start thinking about that episode in his life when he committed adultery and murder, and then it took him a long time before he finally came around and confessed it. And it certainly could be that this psalm is related to that episode. And by the way, here in a few weeks, Lord willing, we're going to get back to the book of 2 Samuel, and we will make our way toward that grim episode in 2 Samuel. So it could be that this psalm is related to that event, but we're not told, and that's okay. We don't need to be. It's enough for us to know that David was willing to go on record describing what it was like to ache for that relief and then find it. It's enough for us to have what David actually writes here, whatever the backstory may have been. There's a lot in this one psalm. There are any number of ways that we might go about it this morning. We're going to take it on in these two main headings. The first is this, the relief of forgiveness, verses 1 through 5 the relief of forgiveness. And then the second is the summons to forgiveness. And that's verses 6 through 11, the summons to forgiveness. Because David describes here not only his own experience that he's been through, but then he turns that experience into testimony, turns it into a summons that others might learn from him and follow his lead. So let's begin with the first of those two headings, the relief of forgiveness, verses 1 through 5. Um, If if it helps you, think of it this way. We're going to raise the bar here, the three letters B-A-R, beatitude, agony, and relief. Beatitude, agony, and relief, B-A-R. It all starts with a beatitude, just like Psalm 119 just like the whole book of the Psalms. Blessed is. We've got a beatitude. It's a pronouncement of blessedness. And notice, it's a fourfold beatitude here. There are four different aspects of it. David's got four different ways of describing the person that he's talking about. The first is this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. So that's what he says right out of the gate. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. What does it mean to say that? What does it mean to say that God forgives our sins? What it means is that God sovereignly, divinely determines that he will not judge us for our sins as we deserve. So that the barrier that our sins had become between us and him is torn down. Fellowship is restored. That's what it means. 
Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. So that's the first of the four ways he puts it. The second is this. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. That's how he puts it next. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. That's a way of picturing the reality of forgiveness that he's talking about. It's as if our sin is covered in God's sight. Now I say it's as if because, of course, it's not the case that God actually becomes unaware of how we sinned against him. God always was and is right now and always will be the all-knowing one, including knowing all about all our sins all the time. So forgiveness does not mean that God actually doesn't know Instead, forgiveness means that God will not treat us in a certain way even though he does know what he knows. In that sense, using that image, it's as if our sin is covered in his sight as our judge. So that's the second. Here's the third, the third aspect of this beatitude. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's at the beginning of verse 2. So that's, that's another way of putting it. When God forgives us, it's God saying, I, I won't count your sin against you, won't charge it to you as you deserve. And then there's one more. Here's the fourth aspect of this beatitude. Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. I think it's fair to say that of the four aspects of this beatitude, this one's not like the first three. The first three, sin forgiven, sin covered, sin not counted, they go together well. They clearly all have to do with being forgiven by God. But now we've got this one, blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. This one doesn't seem to be like the first three. For that matter, at first glance, this one might actually strike us as somewhat discouraging. Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then we look into our own spirits, we look into our own hearts, and none of us can say that we're completely free from deceit, from falsehood. So this last one might be somewhat discouraging, as if we were so close to being blessed, but then we were disqualified at the finish line. Like when they read out the winning raffle number, and your ticket's a perfect match until they read the last digit, and it's somebody else who's rejoicing and going up to get the prize. But take heart. David is not saying this is somebody who's completely free from deceit and falsehood. David's saying this is somebody who's not lying to himself and to God about the particular sin that he needs to confess. That's the idea. That's what David's saying. It's focused like that. This is somebody who's not lying to himself and lying to God about this particular sin that he needs to confess. So this is somebody who's come clean with God about this sin in this moment. In that sense, there's no deceit. There's no living in denial. Blessed is that man. So that, brothers and sisters, is our fourfold beatitude. And then right after that, David remembers the agony. 
David says, I remember a time when I was not experiencing that blessedness myself, and it was nobody's fault but my own. Look at verses 3 and 4 now. Verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And isn't this a fruitful Sunday for us to reflect upon that? Dried up as by the heat of summer. This is the part of the psalm where you start aching and groaning for relief. This is the agony part of the psalm. David says, when I kept silent. In other words, when I didn't come clean with God about my sin, when I hadn't yet come around to confess as I should have, when I was still there, when I was still in that spiritual place, I was positively miserable. And I felt it inside and out. I was wasting away, I was weighed down, I was drying up. You won't be surprised to hear that Charles Spurgeon had a memorable way of putting it. Here's Spurgeon, quote, The Spanish Inquisition, which with all of its tortures, was nothing compared to the inquest which conscience holds within the heart, end quote. That's Spurgeon. And that's David. I was wasting away. I was weighed down. I was drying up. And notice, David says, God, your hand was heavy upon me. I've been saying this was David's fault. This was the result of his sin and his failure for a time to confess his sin. But it's, it's not like God wasn't involved in the fact that David felt miserable like this. He says, God, your hand was heavy upon me. God was making David feel that way. Again, listen to Spurgeon. Quote, God's hand is very helpful when it uplifts, but God's hand is awful when it presses down. Better to have a world on your shoulder like Atlas than to have God's hand on your heart like David. End quote. God was making David feel that way. And as awful as it must have been, and Spurgeon's right about that, still we have to say it was a mercy of God that he was making David feel that way. It was a mercy of God that David felt positively miserable at a time when it was right for him to feel that way, holding out on God. It was merciful because it wasn't meant to break him. It was meant to bring him back. And it did. It was a merciful agony. A merciful agony. Which sounds like it could be a song title. Merciful agony. So we've noticed the the beatitude here. And then the agony, David says, I remember a time when I didn't feel that blessedness, but then thankfully from B to A to R to relief. 
Look at verse 5. Here's the relief. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is the part of the psalm where the relief finally breaks in, where we finally get to sigh that sigh along with David. The way to be forgiven by God is to confess your sin to him and to ask his forgiveness. That's the way it happens. That's what David's teaching us here. Not because there's something so wonderful about your confession, and we can fall into that trap. The trap of thinking that we've got to make our confession impressive to God. As if that curries his favor somehow. No. It's not because there's something so wonderful about your confession. It's simply because that's the way that God himself has appointed to bestow forgiveness. The acknowledgement of our sin. Even short and sweet. doesn't have to be much. doesn't have to be impressive. We don't have to go on at length. Father, I've sinned against you in this way. Forgive me. Forgive me because Christ died for me. And Father, I repent. Grant me the grace now to rise up and to, and to move forward bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. Amen. That's the way we come back to God. We pray to Him like that. So notice there's a wonderful pairing here of what we do whenever we confess our sin and what God does as a result. What we do is to uncover our sin by acknowledging it. And then what God does is to cover our sin by forgiving it. We uncover in confession and God covers in forgiveness. A perfect pairing and so it's a double kind of relief here that David describes. First and foremost, it's the relief of forgiveness. It's the relief, and there's none like it, that comes from knowing that you're right with God, that, that fellowship with God has been restored. But then second, it's also the relief of confession. The relief that comes from knowing that you're not, you're not lying to yourself and to God about what you've thought or done or said. You're not living in denial. And you're not holding back. That itself is a source of some relief in your soul. Especially if it is the case that you've been holding out on this, holding back on this for some length of time. What a relief it is to stop holding back. And to confess it instead. So brothers and sisters, that, that is the relief of forgiveness in verses 1 through 5. And we feel the relief all the more sweetly because of the agony that David described in his own experience. So let me just pause here and say... Let this be a moment of gratitude. Let this sink in and let this be a moment of gratitude for us in Christ. We are a forgiven people. 
That's one way of thinking about who we are now. Hello, my name is forgiven. Forgiven by God. And our God continues to forgive us over and over, time and time again when we go back to Him in confession. There's no blessedness like this. There's no relief like this. Christian, you're able to sigh, that sigh of relief that comes from knowing that you're right with a holy God, that comes from knowing that you're not lying to Him, you're not holding out on Him. That is the relief of forgiveness and Christian that is yours. Thank God for it. So that's the first of our two headings, the relief of forgiveness in verses 1 through 5, and that brings us then to the second of our two, which is the summons to forgiveness, the rest of the psalm, verses 6 through 11. The summons to forgiveness. As I said, David has experienced this himself, but then he doesn't keep it to himself. He takes what he's experienced and and he shares it. He takes the lessons that he's learned and he summons the people of God to learn from him and to trust along with him. So look at verse 6. Look at how the rest of the psalm goes. Therefore, he writes, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. That too, an apt word for this Sunday morning. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. He's going back and forth between what he has experienced and this call that others know it too. Look at verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's David saying, learn from me. Learn from my own experience of confession and forgiveness and relief. He's saying if you've got sin that you need to confess to God, then confess it. Don't let it wait. Don't let it sit. Go to God. Pray to Him. Pray to Him now. And take it upon yourself to do it. Show yourself to be the kind of person for whom that's natural to go to God like that. So that it's not a fight. So that it's not something that you've got to be dragged to like a petulant child. Or according to the psalm, like a stubborn mule. Go to God. Pray to Him. Pray to Him now. Confess your sin to God. And when you do, you'll find Him to be a refuge just like I have. So says David. You'll find that His steadfast love surrounds you like it surrounds me. So says David. You'll find that you've got great cause to rejoice. So says David. So as we think about David's example here, I've been saying we can learn from him. 
We can say that his example is mixed. There's a positive side to it and a negative side. There's a positive side. In other words, there's a sense in which we should be like David. But there's also a negative side. There's a sense in which we shouldn't be like David. And both of those go into the lessons that he would have us learn. So on the one hand, we should be like David in the sense that we go to God to confess our sin and be forgiven and find relief. On the other hand, we should not be like David in this particular episode in the sense that we shouldn't have to get to a point of utter spiritual agony before we finally come to our senses senses and go back to God. It shouldn't get to that point. And David's teaching that as well. Your own sin, confessing your own sin, don't let it wait, don't let it sit. But then we can also say, and this is part of the lesson, if it ever does get to that point in our lives, the point that we've been living in denial about our sin in some way and holding back, holding back on God in some way, and we're miserable and we feel like we're wasting away and weighed down and drying up, and if it ever gets to that point, take heart, all is not lost. Because even then, even when the hand of God is heavy upon you like that, even then there's still the possibility of confession and forgiveness and relief. And in fact, His hand is heavy upon you precisely so that you'll go to Him after all. A merciful agony. You're not too far gone. And in fact, that can actually become an excuse that you come up with for not repenting by telling yourself that you're too far gone. But if you try to resort to that excuse, it's as if David himself comes along and says, that excuse won't fly. Read my Psalm 32. The point is we can learn all of that from David in this one psalm. The ways in which we shouldn't follow his lead, but then the ways in which we should and we can. David has this lesson to impart this manifold lesson, and he has it because of what he went through. And he was willing to say so, willing to testify, willing to go on record. And and that's not uncommon, is it? Isn't it the case that so many of the lessons that we have to impart, well, we have them because of some experience we went through in which we had to learn the lesson the hard way. In that respect, David's a model for us. Now, we do need to be very careful here. We we do need to say in our own lives, great wisdom is called for when it comes to the revealing of our own past follies. And that's the wisdom of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs teaches us that not everything we might say we should say, not everything we might reveal should we reveal, depending upon circumstances and details and relationships and all the rest. We're living in a talk show Twitter culture in which it's just taken for granted that everything can and ought to be put on display, including past follies and indiscretions. And we who are in Christ should not march to the beat of that foolish drummer. But given that, allowing for that, within the parameters of wisdom about our words, David's a model. 
We ought to be willing at least, we can say that, we ought to be willing at least, when wisdom calls for it, the wisdom, the willingness to say, learn from me, because I remember a time when I blew it. And I, I want you to learn the lesson I learned without learning it precisely the way I learned it. I'll, I'll give you an illustration. I know I've, I've told you the story before, but it, it fits well here. It has to do with uh, my guitar. In fact, I was thinking, it, um, he's on stage today. They say in preaching that you need to be careful in the pulpit that you don't tell stories about members of the family lest you cause them some embarrassment, and I try to practice that principle. But um, Martin here, my fourth child, is on stage, and he's probably thinking, oh, you're going to tell that story again, aren't you? Although this story reflects more on me than it does on Martin. I was thinking as well, uh, Will, this may be a painful story for you because this is a story having to do with my taking bad care of a good guitar. So avert your ears, dear brother. The first winter that I had my new Martin guitar, I'll confess, I did not know everything that I should have known about um, taking care of a fine wooden instrument during the dry winter months. You've got to keep it humidified. And I didn't, and it wasn't uh, long into that first winter before Martin fell ill. Martin was buzzing. There was a not noticeable buzzing sound coming from Martin's high E string. And I could tell just by looking at it that he wasn't well, something wasn't right. And it didn't take a whole lot of internet surfing and guitar shop phone calling to realize that it was almost certainly because I'd allowed Martin to dry out. I had not kept him properly humidified as the air got cold and dry. So I took their advice, went over to Guitar Center. Sometimes when I go in there, I feel like Norm on Cheers. Paul, you're back. What's the problem now? So I took their advice, bought the humidifying kit, inserted it as instructed, and in days, just a few days, Martin was well. The buzzing was gone. The misshapenness of the neck was gone. Oh, what a relief it was. First, I was afraid that I'd bought a lemon, and then I was afraid that I'd done irreparable damage to Martin. What a relief it was to know that I hadn't. So I stand before you this morning, and I say, learn from me. Learn from my experience of agony and fear and remedy and relief. Blessed is the guitarist whose guitar is properly humidified and well cared for, and you want to keep it that way. Stay on top of it. If you don't, it will dry out. It will buzz. It won't look right. It won't play right, and it could get pretty bad, especially if you neglect it for a while. So learn that. But also learn this, even if it gets to that point, all is not lost. Even then, there's still the possibility of humidifying and relief. So, brothers and sisters, if it matters to get wisdom when it comes to our possessions, taking proper care of the things that we own, and here, too, we could fill in the blank, not just a guitar, but a car, a laptop, whatever it might be, our homes. 
How much more does it matter to take proper care of our relationship to God? Does it not matter supremely to take proper care of our relationship to God? So whether your conscience was stung just a second ago because of something that you said or did, or it's been months, and you've started to wonder if you're too far gone, you are not. And the remedy's the same. Go back to God. Go back to God for mercy, and you'll find it. And the reason you'll find it is that whenever you go back to God, you find Christ, a merciful and faithful high priest at God's right hand. And think about it. Christ himself endured agony. It certainly was not the agony of of his own sin because he didn't have any, but it was the profound agony of suffering for ours, for our sin. He went down into that valley and then he was raised for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. Christ knows what it's like to go down into that agony and then to be raised into joy. And whenever we go back to God, we find him, that high priest. So whether it's something you did a few seconds ago or a few years ago, the remedy's the same. Go back to God for mercy, and you'll find it. You'll find it in Christ, and yours will be the greatest relief because ours is the greatest God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that we are a forgiven people and that we can go back to you again and again and know that forgiveness when we have failed you. We pray that you would grant us to learn from David here, from his folly and his wisdom. Would you grant us to avoid the folly? of allowing sin to go unconfessed for so long so that we end up in such a miserable place? Would you grant us the wisdom to go to you with our sin, whether it was just moments ago or months or years? Thank you that there is that forgiveness and relief to be known, and there is no relief like it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.